The title of my message, I usually don't make too big a deal out of my title, but tonight I'm going to make a big deal out of it. Because my message tonight is how to have the most meaningful Christmas ever and have it all year long. You know, we have kind of a tradition now. I don't understand it, don't know where it came from, don't know what it's about, Christmas in July and all that. Well, tonight I've got something much better than that. How to have the most meaningful Christmas ever and have it all year long. Amen. Sound good to anybody? All that joy to the world and the wonders of his love and all that great peace and joy that we celebrate this time of year all year long. Amen. So let's just dive into this, if that's okay with you. Uh, 1983, Christmas of 1983, I was getting ready to leave behind my family, all my friends, and move 6,000 miles away to the mission field to a country where I didn't know one person. I was going to leave January of 2nd. 1984, so Christmas of 83, I realized this is the last Christmas I'll be with my family, and uh, getting ready for that, and there was a lot in my heart then, like, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? (laughs) Am I going to, am I going to be able to handle this, you know? So it was a big deal. And then that same Christmas, I was reading uh, the Christmas story, and I was reading out of the Living Bible. And I want to read Luke 2, 10 and 11 out of the Living Bible, and how God spoke to my heart in such a great way. This, of course, is where the shepherds are out there in the field, and an angel appears to the shepherds and announces what this whole Christmas thing is all about, what we celebrate now this time of year. And this is what the angel said, Luke 2, 10 and 11. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you the most joyful news ever announced. And it is for everyone. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born tonight in Bethlehem. Now, of course, we traditionally know that more from King James and from some Christmas carols. Good tidings of great joy. And it is for all people. Good tidings of great joy. But when I read these words, it got my attention. I bring you the most joyful news ever announced. Woo! Do you see the message of the Savior as the most joyful news ever announced? And I was so excited. I was ready to get on the plane right then. Bring that Lufthansa 747 on. Let's go. We're going to tell the world the most joyful news ever announced. And I got to tell you, after whatever long the flight is and all the layovers and you're zombie tired because you haven't slept and the time change, I went to Germany. It was 11 degrees outside. I went downtown that night and I witnessed to somebody that very night on the streets of Germany. 
I told an old wino alcoholic named Willie the most joyful news ever announced. He became my friend. Willie, the wino, was one of my best friends for decades after that. Oh, let it settle upon you. That this message, the Savior, yes, the Messiah has been born tonight. That message is the most joyful news ever announced. Amen. And it is for everyone. And we have that privilege to have that message living in our heart and that message to share with other people. That'll kickstart you right there to have the most meaningful Christmas you ever had right there. Now I want to skip up to where uh, Matthew chapter 1 and Mary has already had a visitation from the angel and he explained the whole thing to her that she was going to conceive a baby by, and it was going to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And she said, Lord, do it unto me as, as you have said. But now we're going to get into the, the, the virgin with, with her husband, with her fiancé really, but in Jewish tradition that's just almost the same thing. Once you're engaged, it's pretty much it in Jewish tradition. And so Joseph also had a dream and an angel came and spoke to him. And we're going to pick that up on Matthew 1, 20-21. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, <clears throat> for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. It was the, the father's prerogative, the father's right to name the child. But the angel told Joseph, you don't get to think of a name, buddy. Here's his name. His name is Jesus. Amen. For he shall save his people from their sin. Literally, that word Yeshua means salvation. And Joseph, thank goodness, obeyed. And call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Man, let me tell you, the Savior has been born. And he shall save his people from their sins. That is the most joyful message ever announced. Paul affirmed that in 1 Timothy 1.15. He echoed that sentiment. He said this, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. I love that. Worthy of all acceptance. Like, you got to buy into this. You got to buy into this, Paul said. It's worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. I'm so thankful that God sent his Savior. I'm so thankful that he cared, that he loved us, that he sent his Savior to forgive us of our sins and to save sinners. How about you? Amen. Now, this has some strange verbiage in it. This is New King James Version. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What? Sinners? We don't like that nowadays. We're too, we're too uh, urbane, man. We don't like being called sinners. 
But who are we trying to kid? Because we are. And Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Paul said, of whom I am the chief of sinners. Notice that Paul did not minimize his sin. Paul didn't minimize his sin in this thing. And I'm telling you tonight, the monumental beauty of the most joyful news ever announced that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners is lost on many, many people in this generation because they don't really think they're a sinner. Unlike Paul, they minimize their sin. And I talk to people outside the walls of the church. I've talked to thousands and thousands, maybe tens of thousands. I can't count them all. And I know this is true. You know what they think? I'm not a bad person. I never killed anybody or anything. That's people's idea. I never killed anybody or anything. And so the message of the Savior means so little to them. Saved? I don't need, what, saved? Hey, I got a house, you know, I got a car. Man, I got an iPhone. Why do I need to be saved? What do I need to be saved from? Why do I need a Savior? Oh, we need a Savior, amen? And let us never minimize it. How much we need a Savior. As Pastor Mark says a lot of the times, the pop theology of the day, the pop theology of the day downplays our guilt and sin. The pop theology of the day is all about affirm, affirm, affirm people. Just affirm them. Let me tell you this. If you affirm somebody in their sin, you're not doing them any favors. Because if they're living in sin and you affirm them in that and you tell them, well, God loves you anyway, then in their mind, the message received is, hey, God loves me anyway, so it doesn't really matter how I live. I don't need to repent. And so the good news is not good news anymore. It's virtually meaningless. I was watching a video the other day on YouTube of Candace Cameron Bure. How many of you remember Candace Cameron from uh, uh, Full House? That's right, Full House. Thank you. Showing my age there. Candace was doing an interview with her brother, actually, Kurt Cameron. He was from Growing Pains. And she began, she's a believer now, and she began to give her testimony. And she says this, she said, I believed in God, but I, I really didn't know why I needed God. Why do I need God? And in her mind, she said, I thought of myself as a goody two-shoes. I do what mom and dad tell me most all the time. I'm a good person. Why do I really need God? And she, somebody challenged her to pray a prayer and accept Jesus. And when she was 12, she said, well, okay, I accept Jesus. Amen, I prayed a prayer. But she still, she didn't walk with God. She spent years not walking with God. Didn't, was no interest in the Bible. Not at all. And then her brother, Kirk, when she was around uh, 22 or 23, he gave her a book called Revival's Golden Key. And in that book, Candace figured out for the first time in her life that God's standard of good was different than hers. And when she looked at God's standard of good, suddenly she saw, I'm not good. I need a Savior. I need Jesus. And this is what she said. It was not until I saw myself as a sinner that I realized what he did for me.
what he did for me. He came. He came. Born in Bethlehem. He came to save us from our sin. And she realized that for the first time in her life at 22 or 23. At that moment, she fell in love with Jesus. And she started walking with God and and just studying the Bible every day of her life. Now very open and honest, even in Hollywood, with her testimony of Jesus. Jesus went so far as to say this in Luke chapter 7. He who is forgiven little, loves little. He who is forgiven little, loves little. And he was dealing with the woman who was uh, immoral and was kissing his feet and pouring perfume on his feet. And he was basically saying, look how much she loves me. She's come to grips with how much I've forgiven her. And the, the equivalent of she has been forgiven much and she loves me that much. Now certainly the message of Jesus is not go out and do a bunch of bad stuff so you can be forgiven and then love him more. But I think we realize Jesus is saying, if your perception is, oh, I've only been forgiven of a little bit, you're not going to love God very much. But when you realize how much he's forgiven you, and you know, I just, I dare people, I challenge people. Your perception of how good you are is not right. The Bible says, the Bible says, no one is righteous. No, not one. You think you can save yourself? Well, I'm going to push you out the airplane. And you just flap your arms all you want to, trying to save yourself. Flap, 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 until you thud and splat on the ground. Or I can give you a parachute. Now you got some salvation there. You can't save yourself. And the Bible says in Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on like a parachute. He's the Savior. You can't save yourself. Y'all think y'all remember that? That's how the the lunacy of thinking we're self, we're good, and that we can save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We needed Jesus. Romans 7 Romans 7, uh, 12 through 13, Paul is talking, Paul understood this, and Paul understood that we needed to realize the goodness of God in forgiving us for our sin. So in Romans 7, 12, he's talking about that exact subject, and, and he's talking about how good the law is and how good God's law is. He, he says, and we think, oh, New Testament, New Testament, we don't, we don't use the law. There's nothing about the law. That's Old Testament. That's not what Paul said. Paul said in Romans, I mean, Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.7, he said the law is good if we use it for the purpose for which it was intended. And he goes on to say what that is right there in 1 Timothy 1. But then also he reaffirmed it in, in Galatians, 5, Galatians 3.24. He said, the law is our schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. In other words, God law, God's law shows us we are guilty. I need a Savior. I need Jesus. I need forgiveness of sin. That's what the purpose of the law is. So in Romans 7.12, Paul says this. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin. 
It used what was good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Paul said, when you see the real word of God, you recognize sin. And it becomes utterly sinful. The NLT says it this way, so we can see how terrible sin really is. The New King James and King James both say, so that sin might become exceeding sinful. In other words, that we would see it for what it is. And then when you get it, when you see sin for what it is, then and only then can you see forgiveness for what it is. Let me see here. I'll give a little test. See who's old and who's not. No, anyway. How many of you remember Merle Haggard, the country singer? Hey, we got a few people. Some of you are too young to remember Merle Haggard. I get that. But Merle Haggard was a, uh, Merle Haggard was not just a country superstar. Merle Haggard was a legend in country music. And uh, Merle Haggard had uh, 38 number one hits, which is pretty monumental if you go try to compare that to other people. He's hanging out with George Strait. <laughs> Merle Haggard had 38 number one hits. But before Merle Haggard was a great country star, Merle Haggard had a past. And Merle Haggard, as a teenager, committed all kinds of crimes and was in juvenile detention over and over and over and over and over again. I don't know. They probably don't call it juvenile detention anymore, but that's what they called it when Merle was there. And Merle was in and out of juvenile detention, and he never changed his ways. Nothing stopped him. So then when he was 18 years old, he, he, he didn't stop the trend, and he, he just stayed as a criminal. And at 18 years old, he found himself locked up in maximum security San Quentin prison. Nineteen fifty-seven. And he was in that prison, I think, two or three years. Still didn't learn his lesson at first. Was still determined to break the rules and do what he wanted to do. Didn't learn his lesson that he needed to turn his life around. But finally, he, he was talking to a death row inmate one day, and it scared him straight. And Merle Haggard thought, I don't think I want to pursue this lifestyle anymore. After two or three years, he was paroled and got out. But you know, and, he, and while he was in prison is when he began to write songs and play country music. And as soon as he got out of prison, he started right away with a record deal and became the superstar that we all went on to know. But the accolades, the accolades, all the awards, all the hits, all the money didn't take something away. He was haunted by a sense of shame for having been incarcerated and been in prison. And Merle Haggard, at first he tried to hide it, tried to keep it down, tried to make sure a secret that no one would know that he had been in prison as a young man. He tried to hide it and he realized that's not going to work. They're going to find out. So finally he came clean. And in 1967 he wrote a song about his feelings of being a prisoner. And in that song it was called Branded Man. And in this song, these are what his, his feelings as a man who'd been in prison. 
And he wrote this, when they let me out of prison, I was determined to rise above the shame, but a black mark followed me. If I live a hundred years, I'll never be able to clear my name. He had that sense of shame for his past sin, his past crimes. Then something wonderful happened. In 1972, President Ronald Reagan, who was the governor of California at that time, gave Merle Haggard a full and unconditional pardon. I saw a documentary right before, not long before he died. He just died a few years ago. And in the documentary, they began to talk about, you've got all these hits. You've got 38 hits. You have Grammys. You have Grammy Lifetime Achievement Awards. You've been put into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. You've been into the, the Country Music Hall of Fame. You have been Kennedy Center honoree. All these great things. Tell us, what is the most meaningful award you ever received? And Merle Haggard said, the most wonderful thing I ever received was a full pardon from President Ronald Reagan. I got a full pardon too. His name is Jesus and it's the most joyful news ever announced. I've been forgiven of all my sins. He has, he has blotted out my transgression and promised God will remember my sin no more. Oh, that gets me going, or can you tell? Now I'm going to fast forward to the Jesus movement, early 70s. It was a band called Second Chapter of Acts. And second chapter of Acts was a, a brother and two sisters, and they, their voices harmonized. It's just unbelievable. Such talented singers. And uh, one of the lead singers, her name was Annie Herring. And Annie Herring sang like an angel. She sang kind of like Joni. Just this beautiful voice. But I've got a song on my iPod. Actually, I'm so old, it was on my uh, Walkman back in the day, my cassette Walkman. And it's song's called, He Loves Me. And you know, I'm going to give you all some homework tonight. He loves me, the song says. And she's singing about the love of Jesus Christ. And it's like, as, it's as though in the middle of the song, the recognition of her sin and being forgiven comes over her. And she begins to sing, Hallelujah, He took away my sin and shame. And I want so bad to try to sing it for you, but that would not, my wife says no. <laughs> but that sweet little angelic voice, but she like throws her head back and she begins to belt out those lyrics to the back wall of the biggest stadiums in America. And she sings it over and over. Hallelujah, he took away my sin and shame. He took away my sin and shame. She repeats it like five or six times in a row. So get on YouTube and look up second chapter of Acts. He loves me. So thankful for that. I'm not a man who wants to minimize my sin. I'm a man who wants to maximize the love and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And realize he took away my sin and shape. He came to save us from our sin. So how can I have this all year long? 
How can I have this thing all year long? Well, I'm going to tell you, let me say it this way. The things we celebrate and focus on at Christmas are actually truths that God wants us to live out all year long. The things we focus on at Christmas time are things God wants us to share with everybody we know all year long. That's how to have Christmas all year, all year long. Becky and I have had a newsletter magazine since 1983. And uh, that magazine uh, started out more or less when we would take some of our mission trips. We would be gone uh, back in the... Uh, we would be gone two or three months and we would just keep a daily journal of our activities while we're out talking to people about Jesus. We'd come home real fast and those journal entries would become our newsletters. And by the way, if you want to get that, visit my wife right after that. That was a pretty good segue, huh? Yeah. Anyway, you can sign up and get our newsletter magazine for free. But our newsletter entries became our journals. And of course, we're sharing the love of Jesus. We're talking to people about Jesus in New York City, talking to people about Jesus in, in Europe, Germany, talking to people about Jesus in Africa, talking to people in Eastern Europe about Jesus every day of our lives. And, and, and I would start my journal entries. I mean, I didn't do it on purpose, but I noticed after a while, it's always the same in my newsletter. I would start my journal entry. We, we've been out talking to people about Jesus, and I would start my journal. Today was the greatest day of my life I remember being in Chapel Hill North Carolina preaching in the pit open air what they call the pit the free speech zone and coming home writing in my journal today was the greatest day of my life I think I tweaked my knee there <laughs> today was the greatest day of my life why did I say those things because that's what it feels like Amen. that's what it feels like when you tell somebody about Jesus it's the greatest day of your life, and you can have that all day long, every day. It doesn't wear off. It doesn't wear off. Just this week, I got to share my faith with somebody at a business, and it's a person that I interact with uh, fairly uh, often, and I just felt like I haven't shared the gospel with them clear enough for sure enough and this week I got to do that and I got in the car and I mean it, it was great the business just emptied out and I was just alone with this person and I just shared the gospel for about 30 or 40 minutes and they just took it in so beautifully and so sweetly man when I got in the car I was fist pumping yeah that's the greatest day of my life that's how it really feels when I walked in the door Becky was in the other room I came through the door Woo! got to share the gospel with this person Becky today I tell you it can be the greatest day of your life every day that you share the gospel that you share the message of a savior the message of a savior who came to the world to save us from our sins not just a Christmas thing it's an all year long thing amen and it's what every Christian has the privilege of doing Greatest day of my life. God, this Christmas thing is real good. God and sinners reconciled. That's hard to hear an angel sing, by the way. I'm going to keep doing you favors by not singing it. So Now I want to switch gears a little bit and go, to Luke go a little bit later in Luke chapter 2. How to have the greatest Christmas of your life and have it every day. The most meaningful Christmas. About 40 days 
About 40 days after Jesus was born, his parents took him to the temple and Mary had to go through what was known as a purification rite and that would have been 40 days after the birth. So Mary and Joseph go to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem that's only about five miles from Bethlehem and they took baby Jesus to have him dedicated to the Lord and they walked in that temple and that's what was going on and we're going to pick it up in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. And he had been, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, you have pro- as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, in light, of re- in light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Now I just want you to go with me on a little journey in your mind's eye and your imagination, what that was like and what we can learn from Simeon. Mary and Joseph come walking in. There were millions of Jews at that time. Millions of Jews having babies. So the temple, you know, we think of temple. We think of like some quiet chapel with kind of that music. I don't even like that kind of music, but anyway. That's not what it was like at the Jewish temple. The Jewish temple was a place where you brought your animal sacrifices and there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people in the court of the Jewish temple bringing cows and calves and goats and sheep and pigeons and lambs. It was not quiet and and like a place where you could quietly reflect. It was a a place with the din of thousands of people talking and and sheep and cows and calves and animals and all this hubbub going around and that's where Simeon was. Not exactly a place you think you can hear from the Holy Spirit easily. But I love what the Bible says here. It says that Simeon was filled with the Holy Spirit. What else does it say? It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Simeon was an old man. And God, by his Holy Spirit, told Simeon, you are not going to die until you see Messiah. The Jews had been waiting for Messiah for thousands of years. And yet Simeon knew, I'm not dying. I'm not dying until I see the Messiah. How did he know? The Bible says the Holy Spirit is our counselor, amen? The Bible says the Holy Spirit is our comfort, amen? I mean, Simeon got some comfort and some counsel, amen? Not just did the Holy Spirit reveal to him, you're not going to die till you see the Messiah. Verse 27 says, he was moved by the Spirit and went into the temple courts. In other words, the Holy Spirit told him, now, go now into the temple courts. 
And he walks into that court, thousands of people around. I don't know how many babies were being dedicated that day, but not probably not just Jesus. There were probably lots of babies in there. But Simeon knew by the Holy Spirit, that is him. And it says he came up to the parents. Now this is a miracle in and of itself. He picks out the baby Jesus, 40 days old. And it says he took him in his arms. What do you suppose the mom thought of that? Much less Joseph. Hey, hey. Simeon took Jesus in his arms. Simeon was a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit. Simeon knew the scriptures. Simeon knew Isaiah 7, 14. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you should call him Emmanuel. God with us. Simeon knew Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Simeon was having a moment with the Savior. And when you hold a baby, you don't hold a baby down here. You hold a baby up close. And Simeon knew. My face is nine inches from the face of God. He knew it. I'm staring into the face of Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus had never walked on water. He'd never preached a sermon. He had never healed a blind person. He had not died on the cross yet. But still, at that moment, the magnitude. Simeon was overwhelmed with the magnitude of the person of Jesus. Every Christmas I try to slow down and have a moment with the magnitude of the person of Jesus Christ. I usually wind up, it doesn't happen every year, but most every year I wind up bawling like a baby. The Savior, this Christmas, slow down. Have a moment with the Savior. The magnitude of the person of God, Emmanuel. Simeon's just looking at this baby and he, he looks up and he starts a prayer. Lord, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. In other words, Simeon was saying, life fulfilled. You can take me home now, God. Simeon had the most wonderful and genuine bucket list I've ever heard of. He knew he wouldn't die till he saw the Messiah. And he was standing there with Jesus in his arms. The Bible says, then he spoke to the parents, basically prophesied some things, including the cross, uh, to the parents. Verse 33 says, the child's father and mother marveled <laughs> at what, they had, what had been said about him. You know, tonight I want you to I love you guys so much. I want you to be encouraged. 
We live in a world that can be discouraging, amen? We live in a world where we all face hard things. But I want you to have the greatest Christmas, the most meaningful Christmas you've ever had. And you can do that one way. And you can do that by staring, by stopping and slowing down and by faith. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 that we see Christ. We see the invisible image of God by faith in Christ. You say, Ken, I can't see Jesus. I know, but by faith, we can. Hebrews 11 says, by faith, we see that which is invisible. By faith, we see that which is invisible. And you know what? At this moment, I don't have to see Jesus to know the magnitude of his person. But you know, I want to close with this thought tonight. What I love about Simeon is it says he was waiting. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for Messiah's first appearance. He'd spent his life waiting for that moment because he knew the scriptures and he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. He was righteous and devout. And you know, whether you think about it or not, as New Testament Christians, we are all in the same exact position as Simeon. We are waiting to see Jesus. We are waiting for that moment when we see him. A few years ago, quite some time ago, uh, Mercy Me came out with a song called I Can Only Imagine. Became quite a hit. And in the song, uh, Bart speculates what it'll be like at the moment he sees Jesus. Will I dance? Or will I just fall on my face? We are in the exact same position as Simeon. We are waiting for the moment when we see Jesus. That's our future. That's what's in front of you. That's what's in front of me. The greatest experience of your existence is still ahead of you. That's called hope. And when you have that hope... The Bible says two different times in uh, uh, Titus 2.11 and then again in 1 John 3.3 that when you have that hope, you say no to ungodliness and that it purifies you because you don't just live for the here and the now and what's going on. You live for the moment when you're going to see Jesus. I dare say we're closer than we can imagine. And I like, mercy me, wonder what will that be like? I got all these plans, which I know are nonsense. In other words, I don't know what it'll really be like. But I want to be like that woman who was forgiven much and loved much. I want to just fall and kiss his feet. I want to kiss his feet. I wonder if I may dare be so close at that moment in heaven that I can reach up and stroke his face. Stroke his beard, look into his eyes. Or maybe I'll just fall down on my face a hundred yards away. I don't know, or farther than that. I don't know what it'll be like. All I know is that's what's coming for me and for you. We're not there yet. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 that right now we see dimly through a mirror. 
What did he mean by that? Dimly. One version says darkly through a mirror. You know, we got these nice mirrors at home and they're, they're beautiful glass and you can see detail. But you know what? You say, oh, a mirror, yeah, you can see perfectly. No, you can't. Everything's backwards in a mirror. So not even our modern mirrors are completely accurate. However, in Bible days, they didn't have these beautiful glass mirrors. What they had was a piece of burnished metal. It was polished and it was just a piece of metal polished. And it was a very poor, blurry reflection. And right now we see a lot of things in a very blurry way. But Paul said, someday we're going to see it perfectly. We're going to see Jesus face to face. You know, Pastor Jonathan does a great job. He often um, shares how he never understood certain things in the Bible until he had his own children. And at that moment, wow, that really helps him to understand certain things. And Becky and I got married a little later in life. We don't have children. So uh, for me, I don't have that. But I think for me personally, the greatest, uh, the greatest thing that I have like that is when I met Becky and married her. The, the, the anticipation. I got saved when I was 17 years old, almost 18. The second I got saved, I wanted to be married to a godly woman. And in my case, it took 10 years. I often tell Becky, you don't know how long it was for me. And she says, well, I'm a little older than you. It was longer. I say, no, with a man, it's like dog years. It's longer. <laughs> Such Anticipation. And then all of a sudden we started using this word. Pfft, never used this word in my life. This is my fiance, Becky. Wow, that's cool. The anticipation of that. But you know what? We were just engaged. And right now as Christians, we're engaged, as it were, to Jesus the Savior. But there's a wedding coming. There's a wedding supper coming in the book of Revelation where the church marries Jesus. And the difference between now is we're engaged, then we'll be married. And there's a big difference. And now me and this sweet, beautiful girl have been married. We've been living together as a married couple 32 years almost. The difference there is whew, huge. How often I've been on trips all over the world. And most of the time I just try to take that promise Paul said, I mean, uh, Paul said, do I not have the, the right to take along a believing right, a believing wife, as does Peter? I say, yeah, I take my believing wife along with me. So I try to travel with her. But there's been a few places we've gone, and I knew, I've gone, and I knew they were kind of dicey and dangerous and not a good place to take her. And uh, man, what it's like to be in the Balkans and wars are going on and crazy stuff and she's 10,000 miles away it's horrible I've been in Africa before stomping through the banana groves telling people about Jesus I've gone on two trips with her to Africa and one trip without her with the same team and they all say man you're a dud without Becky <laughs> I said tell me about it because when I'm not with her I just long to be with her she's my best friend I just long to be with her Folks, that's what it's going to be like. It's the difference between being gone on a trip and being home with Jesus. That is our future. That's just ahead of us. I don't know how long it is in years, but it's the next thing on our calendar.
The next big thing on our calendar spiritually is our moment with the Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless you guys. Thanks for listening. And uh, don't forget your homework. Second chapter of Acts. He loves me. Go look that up on YouTube. Bless you guys. Thank you, Pastor Mark.